Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion and politics. In this episode, Emily Judd interviews Rabbi Jason Rubinstein, the Jewish chaplain at Yale University. Rabbi Rubinstein argues that Jewish sacred texts outside of the Bible are key to understanding modern Jewish practice and theology. The central texts of um, Jewish life, both for study and for practice nowadays, really focus on the Talmud, uh, the rabbinic canon, which is sprawling. He explains the differences between the idea of Messiah in Judaism as compared to Christianity. Jewish messianism is very much tied to a transformation of the material conditions of human life, Um, the end of war, the end of poverty and hunger. And Rabbi Rubinstein discusses the uniqueness of Judaism in America. There's always been a kind of uh, pluralism, uh, or one might call it anarchy, uh, to American Judaism, which has never been the case uh, elsewhere in the world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rabbi Rubinstein. I'm personally very excited about this episode because we've not had an episode focused solely on Judaism in our four seasons of the Quadcast. We have previously had an episode on Jewish-Christian dialogue with a Jewish rabbi, but like I said, it was not solely about Judaism. Many non-Jewish people are familiar with the Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Can you talk a bit about the other sacred texts in Judaism and their roles? The Bible has a has a pride of place, the, the Chumash, as we call it, which means the, the five-sectioned book. It's you know written um, scribally. It takes about a year of work to make one. The ones that are um, in our synagogues are are still written on vellum uh, by hand, and you know they have to be maintained in kind of climate-controlled settings. Um, and can last, you know, well over a century uh, when when done so well. Um, and they're treated with great respect. Also, in, in their skull form, they're kind of they're never left left alone. They're always lifted to be transported. Um, also, you can't throw it out, right? There's something called a geniza. Exactly. There's and and that applies to a much broader scope of sacred writings, including prayer books and and some other things that are printed. Um, and then you know the the rest of you know it's called the Bible. We call the Tanakh, which is a three letter acronym for Torah, which is the five books. Uh, which means teaching, uh, Nevi'im, the prophetic books, um, and then Ketuvim, the writings, which would include um, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, the wisdom literature, et cetera, uh, Esther. And so those, those forms like the kind of the core of the canon and the central texts of um, Jewish life, both for study and for practice nowadays, really focus on the Talmud, uh, the rabbinic canon, which is sprawling. Um, it, it has its own kind of history, um, really kind of paralleling in time, the church fathers and, and in space also in a lot of ways. If you wanted to kind of understand contemporary Jewish practice and Jewish kind of theology, uh, you would start more centrally at the Talmud. Things like, you know, one of the classic examples, something Judaism shares with Christianity, right? the drinking of wine on Friday nights as part of the beginning of the Sabbath. Um, the old, there's nothing... Uh, remotely like that in the Torah and the entire Bible. God, you know, human beings never drink wine in a religiously significant event. Libations to God are the only ones of those. Um, whereas the Talmud uh, assumes that a part of the observance of Sabbath uh, and the, the Passover um, Seder and other things um, is involves the drink, the celebratory uh, consumption of wine. Uh, and those, those kinds of things you would find in the Talmud, not in the Torah or, or any earlier. What are some of the divisions in modern Judaism today, specifically the U.S. and the United States? 
So classically, the kind of the great division uh, within Jewish life is actually um, not ideological in any way, shape or form, but Jews who are living under Christianity versus Jews who are living under Islam and not versus just and they, there was a lot of actually correspondence, commerce, exchange, but they're obviously different cultural, theological, legal uh, milieus they're living in. And so those produce large differences um, and, and kind of fascinating, very rich ones, obviously cuisine and music as well. Um, and those are actually alive and well today um, in, in Israel and in America. Um, the, the term generally for Jews come from kind of living in Christian lands is Ashkenazi um, versus Sephardi, even though neither of those terms is very precise um, for, for those who come from Muslim lands. Um, so nowadays in America, the um, the way that I would narrate American Jewish uh, history and denominations, which is you know everyone's narration is uh, you know makes choices, is the the kind of the early layers of American Judaism were reform. Um, the and and really you know kind of the the American Jewish community there were Spanish Portuguese elements and German elements, but the in the late nineteenth century the kind of the only Judaism in America is a Reform Judaism. And what is the Reform Judaism? Right, so it's really uh, uh, an embrace of um, taking in um, the best of European culture and shedding a lot of the kind of traditionally distinctive and um, Jewish practices, you know, clothing, ways of wearing hair, dietary laws that um, had the function and sometimes even the intent of preserving real, dis, you know, separateness for the Jewish community and the, the endogamy, the prohibition on intermarriage, probably obviously being the most charged of these. So the reform community is the American Jewish community. This is why their, their rabbinic group is called the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And their first prayer book, Jewish prayer book, is called Minhag America, the American Rite. And there wasn't a sense of it being right. This was the, the practice here. Um, and then in the early 20th century, you get you know, a large stream of Eastern European immigrants who bring a socialism and bring um, Yiddish and bring, you know, the, the you think of the, maybe the character of Tevya. Um, and then after World War II is when you get a large immigrant uh, population from Poland and Lithuania and Hungary who bring what we would identify today as kind of an ultra-Orthodoxy uh, that's centered really deeply on a kind of a highly scrupulous practice of the commandments, a, an intensive um, focus on the Talmud and a mastery of it in a, um, you know, almost kind of a totalizing of the entirety of the curriculum. And that begins to have interesting effects on the rest of the American Jewish community. Um, but the, I think kind of, you can see in these different kind of historical layers the um, and, and different geographic origins and traditions, the underlying kind of templates of different um, different kind of types of spirituality, which which persist to today. So I'm wondering if you could just give an example, just to demonstrate maybe the difference between reform and ultra orthodox, like you said, in terms of the Sabbath, Shabbat. How would what are the differences between how a reform Jewish person would, um, you know, commemorate the Sabbath and um, someone who is ultra orthodox? So, and and it's a, it's a good the Shabbat, as we call it, is always uh, a helpful window into just these questions. And, and I, I want to preface everything I'm saying. Obviously, there's a great deal of diversity uh, within every Jewish movement. So, you know, the reform a reform synagogue um, people would generally drive to on Shabbat. Um, 
uh, kind of list point by point the distinctions rather than kind of laying law. Whereas in a more observant creed, not just an ultra-Orthodox one, um, driving is one of the kind of central prohibitions on Shabbat, which means that people uh, would only walk um, and would therefore live in a geographically dense uh, community. Um, then the service itself would also look quite different. Um, the Reform Service would incorporate a, lot, a significant amount of English. Um, and, you know, the prayers would be recited responsively and, and may vary significantly week to week. Um, whereas in a, again, in a more traditional and, and not only ultra-Orthodox setting, the service would be basically exclusively in Hebrew. The sermon may be in English, also maybe in Yiddish. And then the kind of the praxis of Shabbat is, you know, in an um, observant setting where there's no, there's no food, there's no cooking. So all food preparation has to happen beforehand. There's no use of electricity or fires. So lights have to be set. Oftentimes timers are used so the lights will turn off or, or hot plates will turn on. Um, coffee has to be ground beforehand and hot water urns have to be set up beforehand. And other people don't go to work. And so the set of leisure activities on Shabbat, would, you know, you wouldn't go to the beach necessarily. Um, you would spend time um, with the community, whether it's studying, whether it's you know the kids playing together. It tends to be people are obviously off of screens, um, so it tends to be like a very um, feels kind of pre-modern in a certain way. Um, and I will share. So I, you know, I've, I've visited ultra orthodox communities, never lived in them. I grew, I grew up reform, spent some time in. Um, or liberal orthodox settings, and, and my ordination is conservative. But I will share one of my favorite uh, moments was from a student in a program I used to teach in into admissions who said he himself was living a kind of observant and modern life, saying, you know, I, I don't understand what the point of Shabbat was before social media. That um, the, the kind of force of a, a rule that will keep you and your friends and family and community off of their devices for 25 hours is extremely powerful. And part of the reason I bring that up is you know, there's often a sense that the traditions are, are ancient because they are, and there's it can be hard to capture the ways that they will they take on new meanings um, in in modernity and postmodernity. I just wanted to share that as a really delightful vignette um, of one of the ways they do. The same terms and concepts have different meanings in Judaism and Christianity. For example, Sabbath, covenant, Messiah. Can you explain the figure of the Messiah? in Judaism and what is the key difference between the Messiah in Judaism and Christianity? Great. It's a, it's a great question. Um, so I think the, the key difference, uh, the term Mashiach in Hebrew means anointed one. It's actually a broad term. There are many, many people who are anointed in the Torah and elsewhere. Um, you know, the, the main difference is in terms of scope, right? The uh, Messianism is, is at the very center. It is in some level what Christianity is, right? So the, the word Christ itself um, and is a is a concept in Judaism, but a, you know, it is never the central one. Um, and it's always a more fraught one. Um, and so that's, I think the first is a kind of a foreground versus a background distinction. And then the second one, which is perhaps a little bit more obvious, um, is that Christianity really claimed that the, uh, the Messiah and the figure of Christ Jesus has, has come and redeemed the world. And for Judaism, it's a, uh, a future oriented, um, you know, expectation, hope, or fantasy. Um, and I think that kind of the deepest piece of this is that Jewish messianism is very much tied to a transformation of the material conditions of human life, um, the end of war, the end of poverty and hunger. Um, and that there is, you know, it's very clear that any claims to a messianic career that don't deliver a this worldly transformation for the Jewish people 
the world as a as a biological and organic entity and the world as a human political entity are are not even to be entertained. Is there anything that's distinctive about Judaism in America as opposed to Judaism around the world, let's say in Israel? Yeah, so American Judaism is the liberal movements, we call the reform and the conservative movements, are much more prominent here than anywhere else in the world. And I think that relates back to the history I was telling of the 19th century. The, there's never been an established Judaism here, and unlike you know in, in British Ottoman. Um, and, and because of that, Israel, uh, countries like Israel, there's a, a chief representative of the Jews to the government um, who's always been an Orthodox uh, rabbi. Um, actually, in, in British Palestine, there and today, there are, there are two, actually, an, an Ashkenazi one and a Sephardi one, as we discussed, but not a reform reconstructionist or conservative one. Um, there were attempts to have a chief rabbi of New York. Uh, which failed, uh, you know, kind of went down in flames, I would say, in the early 20th century. Um, and so there's always been a kind of a pluralism, uh, or one might call it anarchy, uh, to American Judaism, which has never been the case uh, elsewhere in the world. Interesting. Uh, my last question is actually going back to the Torah. One of the Ten Commandments is to refrain from taking the Lord's name in vain. Can you describe a bit about the significance of God's name in Judaism? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the way I would formulate it is God's name is understood as a as a kind of precious gift um, that one has to treat um, with reverence uh, and respect. And so the the tetragrammaton, um, the four letter name of God, is the um, seen as the kind of most personal and direct one. Um, and that's why it's never pronounced directly. Um, there's a tradition, actually, that the one time it was pronounced in its original form was by the high priest in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, um, and that it's made a kind of deafening resonance uh, throughout all of Jerusalem. And so nowadays we use other monikers. I mean, there are many different names for God uh, in the Bible, and, and there are new ones that are generated, um, you know, the merciful one, et cetera, over, over time, uh, the ancient of days, like uh, that one's from the book of Daniel, um, but beautiful ones that kind of the holy blessed one, um, which kind of come up over time. And, and there have been new feminist ones, you know, the font of life, et cetera. Um, and so there's a kind of a generative sense of God transcending each and every name, although the names do kind of in some ways you know, partake of some of God's sanctity. So in Jewish prayer, there would be no mention of God's name. It would be one of the the names that you just said as a it's a, it's a Even for the sanctity, I'm not going to pronounce it right now, but it would okay. translate as my master is how we refer to God, even though it's printed in the prayer books as the Tetragrammaton without vowels, which is why they have that sacred status and go to the Geniza, as you described. Um, but it's the, that name is not pronounced. Interesting. Okay. I had no idea. I didn't know that. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think the discussion was very beneficial for all of our listeners. So thank you.